Jeannie and Julius are 51-year-old twins who still live with their mother, Dot, in rural isolation in the English countryside. They've lived in a modest cottage their whole lives. It's an insular space far removed from the modern world with its smartphones and computers. They believe they have all they need. They have a garden where they grow their own food. They make music with piano, banjo, violin, and guitar. To the outside world, they are odd and impoverished. These two assumptions take on new meaning after Dot dies. The private life she helped create to protect her children starts to unravel. The twins must learn how to negotiate the world outside the cottage grounds for the first time in their lives. Secrets about Dot emerge, and the twins must face some harsh and devastating truths about her and about themselves. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. I spoke to author Claire Fuller about her latest novel, Unsettled Ground. Claire, I, I wonder, do you have the book by you? I wonder if you would be willing to read the first page and a half? Yeah, sure. Yeah, oh, okay. no problem. The morning sky lightens and snow falls on the cottage. It falls on the thatch, concealing the moss and the mouse damage, smoothing out the undulations, filling in the hollows and slips, melting where it touches the bricks of the chimney. It settles on the plants and bare soil of the front garden and forms a perfect mound on top of the rotten gatepost, as though shaped from the inside of a teacup. It hides the roof of the chicken coop and those of the privy in the old dairy, leaving a dusting across the workbench and floor where the window was broken long ago. In the vegetable garden at the back, the snow slides through the rips in the plastic of the polytunnel, chills the onion sets four inches underground, and shrivels the new shoots of the Swiss chard. Only the head of the last winter cabbage refuses to succumb, the interior leaves curled green and strong, waiting. In the high double bed up the left staircase, Dot lies beside her adult daughter Jeannie, who is gently snoring. Something different about the light in the room has woken Dot, and she can't get back to sleep. She gets out of the bed, floorboards cold, air colder, and puts on her dressing gown and slippers. The dog, Jeannie's dog, a biscuit-coloured lurcher who sleeps on the landing with her back to the chimney breast, raises her head, inquiring about the early hour as Dot passes, lowering it when she gets no answer. Downstairs in the kitchen, Dot jabs at the embers in the range with the poker and shoves in a ball of paper, some kindling and a log. She feels a pain behind her left eye. Between her left eye and her temple, does the place have a name? She needs to go to the optician, get her eyes checked. But what then? How will she pay for new glasses? She needs to take a prescription to the chemist, but she is worried about the cost. The light is wrong down here, too. Lowing? Owing? Glowing? She touches her temple as though to locate the soreness and sees through the curtains in the gap where they don't quite meet that it is snowing. It is the 28th of April. Thank you so much. That sets up so much for us about this work, um, about Dot and even about Jeannie and also about the place. And I have to say that we had a very rare 
snow weather event in Texas in February it doesn't usually snow, and it certainly doesn't snow as much as it as it did. Um, and uh, I, and I have a garden, and I keep chickens, so I have to tell you, reading that this first page of the novel, I was so struck by the the details about the the sort of very resilient cabbage <laughs> and <laughs> the look of the of the light and 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 things like that i just have to tell you just th- how gorgeous the details are just f- for page after page of of this book um but you also bring to us in this first page the character of dot and she is a character that we continue to meet through the novel in very interesting ways, but uh, she, she does die uh, pretty soon after uh, this opening scene that you just read. Can you tell us a little bit about the novel? I do feel sometimes like when I tell someone about this book, I'm in this sort of landmine of uh, sort of this area <laughs> of landmines of spoilers because every, they're just, it's sort of like the way that you describe growing potatoes you plant one and you go to unearth uh, uh, the crop uh, weeks later and there are so many of them the book is that way for me this treasure of page after page of things that I even if they're not spoilers I want the readers to happen upon these things on their own I don't want to spoil that for them so I'm going to ask you to summarize the novel (laughs) and I'll steer clear of that Oh no, I do know it. I do know what you mean. Um, but there are, you know, to describe it, there are some things you, I kind of have to give away. But I, I do steer well clear of the ending. So there are still lots of surprises, I think, for the reader, and lots of things to discover, even in this kind of my usual summary. So, so really, the book is about Jeannie and Julius, who are fifty-one-year-old twins and still live with their mother in a dilapidated cottage in um, rural England in a county called Wiltshire, which is kind of centralish England. And they have lived there with her for 51 years. And as you said, she dot dies at the opening of the book. And Jeannie and Julius have lived a very secluded, isolated life. I mean, they've been relatively happy, but maybe because they've not known any anything different but Jeannie who has been diagnosed as having a heart condition stays at home with her mother and tends the garden growing a few vegetables to sell for a little bit of money and Julius goes out to work for odd jobs whatever he can pick up here and there they live a very um, hand-to-mouth cash-based existence because they don't have transport they don't have technology they don't have bank accounts Um, And after Dot dies, suddenly these adult children have to cope with the outside world and neighbours and officialdom and money, and they don't cope with it very well. Well, So this is set in contemporary times. Uh, Other people in in the book have smartphones and computers and the internet and Alexa, you know, uh, smart homes. Uh, But there is such a sense of um of a simpler time in the novel too this throwback to a bygone era there's almost a timelessness about the way that the twins 
live in this cottage. They are 51-year-old twins. And, you know, it's not too difficult to imagine these days older children by necessity living with their parents. We read about this all the time with this um, generation of young people who opt to, to stay with their parents, don't want to own their own house. And and we, we know of that, but we don't think about it, I think, in terms of a 51-year-old or, or two 51-year-old uh, ch- uh, children living with their mother in these ways not even having an inkling that they might start their own families um and maybe not even as we as you suggested not even really able to move through the world negotiate it's so difficult for them for anybody really to negotiate the bureaucracies of an estate or of of seeing to details after a loved one has passed away but they are really hamstrung by a number of other things, just how insulated they've been. Jeannie doesn't, uh, isn't uh, schooled. She didn't go to school. She went to school, but she missed so much school that she's, she is functionally illiterate. And Julius has a kind of emotion sickness that also just absolutely seems to paralyze him uh, and keep him from being able to move through the world in, in the ways that a 51-year-old man might. So that at every turn, it seems, there's something else that's, that they've sort of been, that they've sort of inherited and they've been accustomed to and they've been born into, but, but now that has become just a fact of their lives. And it just seems like now that they have to negotiate so much on their own, there are so many more conflicts yeah absolutely um and i think they've they've just got so used to this well they've just not known anything else they've not really ever questioned that they could have a different kind of life because dot has brought them up up in that way and she has put some kind of onus on on um Jeannie to look after herself and be careful because of her heart condition and so she's she mustn't do anything strenuous and a, a duty of care really on Julius to look after his sister um, and they've never questioned this and they don't question it until suddenly Dot dies and everything falls around their ears and suddenly they do see that well certainly Julius sees that there is the potential for a different kind of life and I think at that point their kind of twindom breaks apart because before that you know Jeannie says that she could she can imagine what Julius is thinking she can finish his sentences for him she knows he believes she knows what he wants um and then when when their mother dies suddenly that connection is broken and they do strive for different things and Jeannie just wants to get back home because I think it's also perhaps not a spoiler to say that they are evicted from their cottage and things you know get worse and worse for them um, and Jeannie just wants to get back to that that state that she was in before albeit without Dot uh, but Julius has his eyes opened I think to a wider world and, and romantic connections that he would quite like um, 
So I think they are quite unusual in being 51 and still living at home, but I know some people who are in a very similar situation. It's not that I base Jeannie and Julius on them at all, but I do know that that does happen sometimes still, that adults still live at home with their parents um, and not necessarily as a young adult that you, you mentioned, you know, coming back home and making the choice to live with parents because of housing costs or whatever, you know, that's a different situation to this. Yeah, Dodd has doted on Jeannie. There's been this this diagnosis, this heart issue, and it's just a foregone conclusion that Julius will take care of her. And there's just this, it's not, it's an interesting kind of, I don't want to say inertia, but it's an interesting kind of just complacency in this idea that this is going to be their their destiny. This is their lot in life. This cottage, this garden, their music. They've created a world that's that holds them and sustains them. And even as Julius ventures out and goes to the pub or rides his bike here or there, um, for all practical purposes, yeah, he's he is very much rooted in this place. And it's so interesting that he himself, at a certain point, is ashamed of the way Jeannie looks uh, when he thinks about Shelley Swift, meet, uh, this girl that he likes meeting, uh, meeting his sister. And he finds his sister to be very odd. And so he, he can sort of have that perspective. So of the two, it seems like she has so much more to to deal with in terms of how people perceive her, though she doesn't really seem to care <laughs> very much. Um, he does, Julius does seem to want a life outside of the, of the cottage, uh, create a, a new life, or perhaps a, a, a family of a type. And Jeannie just does not have uh, those inclinations at all. But she does, as you say, have such a feel such a strong bond with him that Corsican kind of twinship and I have to uh, say to you that I'm a twin to a boy oh. we are also in our 50s <laughs> so. <laughs> oh so many connections yes, here. So many con- oh I have I'm just I just love this novel for so many reasons and not just for those um, one-to-one resonances, but um, my twin brother would say that he did not feel that that Corsican thing with me. But I'm just convinced, you know. And he was the first boy I loved, and you know the whole thing. In that way, that Jeannie just um, dotes on him, dotes on Julius, you know, wants to take care of him, wants to take care of what their mother created for them even as he's a little more reckless with all of it she is trying so hard to maintain but they are so much as homeless and suddenly from one moment to the next just turned out of the cottage and um have no food have have nothing have no no money so it's so interesting to me too the the speed with which that happens and that's that's very realistic that that really does happen and sometimes those kinds of um things occur with the death 
of uh, of a parent or a member of the family. Um, families can be just absolutely devastated by um, an event, not just emotionally, but financially too. And we see just the extreme way that their lives, their routines, um, you know, taking care of the chickens, just everything changed um, for them. And uh, it's such a dramatic thing. And that sets in motion every other thing that, that comes after that they have to contend with. Um, but I do see a level, even though there are some terrible characters in this <laughs> in this novel that do some terrible things, there's a lot of goodwill in this book that I also um, enjoyed sort of Im- immersing myself in a little bit, like like Saffron and Angel and and even Bridget in her way, <laughs> in yeah. her very interesting yeah. way, uh, lighting her cigarettes and, and uh, sucking on her mints and asking too many questions <laughs> and having too many opinions. But what I also enjoyed about Bridget, who uh, was a, such a close friend of Dot's, and Bridget's husband, Stu, they do, for a short period of time, take in... Uh, Jeannie a very short period of time and she's exposed to the ways that you know the the other folks live and she is she is none too impressed she is not impressed with the large television and the uh, meals that they can warm up in the microwave and she she's not she realizes she wasn't missing anything but I love the way that you um give us the perspective from Jeannie as they're sitting there watching this detective show and you know Stu says that the main character looks a little like Jeannie <laughs> and we just <laughs> did, you, did, did you recognize the show I don't know. I think I think it's available over there but it, um it's Broadchurch Broadchurch broad yes yeah. I just love that I love that Broadchurch was was there and that that Jeannie just you know wasn't into it <laughs> <laughs> but I did quite I did see her a little bit like Olivia Coleman who who plays the female detective in Broadchurch <laughs> well I after Stu said that I did picture Olivia Coleman <laughs> for the duration of the book, which was fun but um there's a there's something here too about lies about secrets and lies and I read an interesting review of the novel that suggested that parents lie, that that all parents lie, and and I feel like sure there are there are it, it was such a such a a strong statement about lies and about all parents lying, and so I thought you know there's a, there are the white lies and there are the lies that we tell to protect our children from the world or from having their innocence just be absolutely destroyed. Um, what what do you think of that idea of of the way that parents have to lie to their children? I, I think um, I think parents probably, yeah, you're right. They all do it to a certain extent. You know, usually it is with the child's best interests in mind. But for... Um, Dot, the lie that she tells Jeannie, and I'm, I'm not going to say what that is, but I, th- I think she, 
she kind of does it almost with her own best interest in mind, perhaps, because she's her husband has just died and she's going through huge trauma. He's died in a very traumatic way and, and that affects her greatly. I think almost for a whole year, she just doesn't really function. And I think she's very scared about her children potentially leaving home and her being on her own. Um, so she, she tells this devastating lie, which does affect Jeannie really for the rest of her life. But I think Doc does it completely out of love um, because she thinks, you know, for her and her life, she doesn't particularly value education or leaving home or having any other kind of life. She thinks the life that she has had is good enough for her children. And I think there are lots and lots of parents like that, um, that they consider, you know, the little education they had, the formal education is fine and you can learn enough at home, you know, how to grow vegetables, how to cook, how to look after yourself and, and the cottage and all that kind of thing. So the lie that she tells Jeannie is, does have devastating consequences and, and affects the rest of Jeannie's life. But I don't think, yeah, it's not malicious. Some readers do see Dot as, as a, a very, very kind of black and white, that she is a bad mother, but I don't see her like that at all. I think she's just perhaps misguided I think she loves her children almost to excess so that she is slightly blinkered. Um, I'm sure I told lies to my children when they were younger, without doubt, if you asked them, I'm sure <laughs> they would, they would uh, be able to name all sorts of things. I do remember actually once telling my daughter, who was obviously being a bit cheeky or something, but I could see through walls. And for a very long time, she believed me. <laughs> <laughs> behaved for a little for quite a while I think <laughs> <laughs> but it's true it's it's not a malicious thing it's a it's a kind of um and it's not self-preservation it's it's it is love it is it does seem to be motivated by her desire to protect her children and to give them something uh even if it's not something monetary and something it's it is she gives the, she does ultimately as as we see she does give them so much and we see that she has she has been doing that or she did that the the their entire lives and that there are far-reaching consequences even after her death but yeah, I it's it's a it was a very interesting read on the on the novel that I had to really think about, um, and certainly, you know, we can use the euphemism of secrets or, you know, secrets lies whatever the same difference. But the idea is that yes, I think that it was something that she did out of love for them, and. Um, you know, Dot is, as you said, a very complicated character. I don't at all like the idea that she is just this one-dimensional black and white uh, person, the, you know, the mom, and that's it. Uh, mm -hmm. Nothing could be further from the truth. She's, And uh, I think that was a, a, such an interesting part of the novel, too. The things that we are able to learn about her 
her interactions with her children and also other things that else that I won't spoil but that just make her a complicated character a real like a real person uh, a real person with with weaknesses a real person who makes choices and uh, and decisions that she's uh, you know she could not possibly know where things would land eventually um, and this is how it is I think you know children maybe children um at this age in their 50s maybe don't consider enough what life has been like for their parents all along and i think when we reach a certain age we start to appreciate the things that our parents did and said uh or even some of the lies like we can sort of accept them um as as loving I think the other complication, the kind of deliberate complication, is that Dot dies. And so we learn, and the children and everybody learns all these things through the filter of someone else. You know, we don't really ever hear from Dot directly, except at the very beginning. So we're always seeing her through someone else's eyes and someone else's opinions. And obviously, they'll have their own biases about this woman, their own already formed opinions about this woman. Um, and I thought that was quite an interesting way of seeing someone. And I think that often happens after someone dies and you think, oh, why didn't, why didn't I ask them that? Why didn't I find out why they did that thing that they did or what their life was like? And so you can only piece it together through little bits and pieces from, from all sorts of people. And Dot very clearly showed a different face to different people because lots of people say in the book oh she was such a good woman the doctor especially who, who who just saw her as someone who cared about her children and and wanted to look after them even while she herself was ill um and lots of people see her in slightly different ways you know Bridget has a different opinion of her and then her children start to learn all these things about her and I, I thought it was quite interesting to have a character who is so central to a novel and yet never really appears. And then the reader also has to piece her together. That's one of the beautiful things about this book that I enjoyed so much. And it it does sort of move page after page like a like a thriller almost. Like a, it, there are so many mysteries. But I kept thinking about that idea that when we're young everything seems so mysterious to us and our parents are a puzzle to us as well um and I think children are a puzzle to their parents but there's just something about the that element of the relationship that is sort of um um reborn in a different way is that they really could not have known the absolute truth about their mother. They could not have known the absolute truth about her. And that's part of what is um, in the, built into the tension of the book, I find. And so page after page, all of the things that, we're, that we are discovering um, are sort of, co it comes from this idea of the mystery of, of of human beings. I mean, we're all sort of mysteries to each other. Um, but to 
come to a position where Dot is, as you say, no longer there to explain, to defend herself as things are un- sort of unraveling, then yes, then the reader ha- must must go through page by page um, following Julius and following Jeannie in these really interesting ways to some very dark spaces and also some unexpected light places like when um i won't i don't even want to give this part away but music <laughs> is so important to the tw- to to the three but music is so important to the twins um and i just love that that became the language between julius and Jeannie. um through the lyrics of a song when they couldn't quite talk to each other and communicate with each other or vent to each other or even quite put a finger on what the trouble was that they could communicate in this way and that seemed to be a a way that they could communicate with everyone in their community that was not judged that was not weird, that was not unusual or odd or a secret. It was all out. I just love that that role that music plays in the book. Yeah, for me, it was really important to have that because it is, a, it is you know, a very sad book, very dark things happen, but I think the music really lifts it for the for the characters, for the reader, and, and for me while I was writing it. And you're absolutely right about the communication between the two of them. You know, sometimes they struggle to say what what they mean, what they want after Dot dies. They suddenly find it very difficult without that third party. But the music, um, they do literally and metaphorically use it as a as a means of communication. So there is a wake for Dot where they uh, lots of people gather to have food and drink and, and to talk about her. And the room is very crowded and Jeannie plays her guitar in the corner in order to catch Julius's attention so that, you know, rather than calling out his name, she plays, hoping to kind of call her to him and, and it works and he comes and they play together. Um, but also for me, music was a way of showing that Jeannie was capable of great learning and skill. The, the gardening gives her some of that because she obviously is is very skilled at gardening. But because she hasn't had a very good formal education and has left school without any qualifications and has never had a job outside of the home, um, uh, because she is so good at playing the guitar and singing and I think the reader sees that because when Jeannie plays and sings, whoever is in the room stops in order to listen because she has that kind of skill. And it was important to me to show the reader that it's not all just about um, standard education. You know, you can be very, very clever and skilled without that. And I think the music helps get that across. And it's so interesting, too, that she is really living by her wits and, and much, of, much of the time as we move through the book, uh, absolutely alone um, for many different reasons at many different points in the book. And, uh, and I like seeing her as somebody who 
is very smart. And one can only imagine um, what a, a formal education could have afforded her, sure. Um, but I still think we are seeing the real genie, the, just the real person who is surviving, uh, finding food, um, just trying to stay alive and to, in, in a certain way, recover some of what she's lost. Yeah, definitely. I mean, she, she is alone in that she doesn't have friends, but I did create Maud in order to, you know, so that she <laughs> would have some kind of companion. So Maud, uh, as as in the piece I, I read out, she is Jeannie's dog, a lurcher, who um, goes with her everywhere. So that, in fact, although Maud is a bit useless, actually, she kind of cowers <laughs> under tables and, and hides when there's ever any threat. But, but it, I, I wanted... Jeannie to have someone with her, especially after Doc dies, when Julius has the potential to leave her completely. Um, and then it was also really important to me that, you know, at the beginning, Jeannie is this very proud character who won't ask for help, who won't accept help even when it's offered. But she does go through this change so that by the end, she meets this character called Saffrona who has a child called Angel and she accepts help from them. She begins to accept help from Bridget. And so there is this kind of character arc, this change that Jeannie goes through so she understands that it's absolutely fine to, to take help, to accept it, and that everybody does that and it doesn't show that you're weak. But she, you're right, she's not a weak person. She is very smart and despite sometimes she makes very uh naive choices because she's been so sheltered i think she doesn't understand that some people will take advantage of her so she's perhaps not smart in that way but she is resourceful and she is stoical and she practical so she does manage to survive and it is it is almost a book about survival i think Claire Fuller, thank you so much for talking to me. It's such a delight. So wonderful to talk to you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Claire Fuller is the author of the novel Unsettled Ground. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Jacob Rizzotti composed our theme music. Kathleen Creedon is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.